the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It is Saturday morning, everyone. 710 KNUS Denver's talk station with Peter Boyles. It is Saturday, November 11th, 2023. 60 will be the high today, says the 710 KNUS Weather Center tomorrow, 63. And on Monday, 65. I've been waiting since I got this book on an advance. And we go back a long way together. But Harry McLean joins us. And the book is Stark Weather. And I thought you were, first of all, with apologies, I thought you were going to be in studio. So apologize for that. But what a, what an amazing book. It's good to hear you again. Good to have you back. Harry, good morning. Morning, Peter. Yeah, we go back quite a ways. <laughs> yes, we do. Because uh, I remember when you did the book on um, that the guy they killed in Missouri, uh, the bully. In, that. In- in broad daylight, yeah, yeah, it was my first book, and we had a great session. Talk in talk, studio, yeah. Talk about that for a second before we roll into this one. Uh, that was a remarkable. Well, that was uh, that was a 1981 story that kind of looked like it should have been 1891. Uh, Ken McElroy had terrorized all of Northwest Missouri for about 20 years, getting away with everything. Uh, no one would prosecute him. No one would arrest him. Finally, the town, little town in northwest Missouri called Skidmore kind of got together, and he was shot to death uh, one Saturday morning as he sat in his pickup truck in front of the bar in front of 65 witnesses. And they had three grand juries, uh, and no one has ever been prosecuted for it. Yeah, I always loved that. And that didn't – somebody did a TV th- th- um, story or a piece was, on it. Yeah, it was a it was a movie. It starred. That was, uh, it was also called In Broad Daylight, and it uh, starred Brian Dennehy as the yeah, bad guy. Did that a was, great yeah. job. Do you yourself personally know who was involved in that in that shooting shootings? Yeah, actually, it's never been much of a secret. Uh, everybody, you know, I only heard one story over the three years, and I've even since then I've only heard one story about who who two shooters were. The third shooter is kind of uncertain, mm-hmm. but the main shooter, yeah, it's 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 a well-known individual. But to do anything about it, you had to get one of the witnesses to stand up and raise their hand and swear in court as to who it was, and nobody would because everybody hated him. Right, he had it coming. <sighs> how, how long did you work on Starkweather, and? I tell I tell people you know this is one of these books you can talk openly about because you have to read it, and I'm going to bring up Daryl Luby. I don't know Harry if you remember Daryl. We were all worked together at KHOW and KOA, but he was a little boy during this, and uh-huh. and he he we've had long conversations way way before I had read your book about his mother. Well, I'll let him tell the story himself. Lou, why don't you see if you can get. Uh, get Darrow up on the phone. But um, his mom, they hid the kids. They thought, and you point out the whole PTSD element of what this, what was, what this was about. So 
begin to tell the story. Who was Charlie Starkweather? Uh, let me say first that I did grow up in Lincoln myself yeah. and was uh, there when this happened. So I'm kind of telling it from a from an insider's point of view or a local's point of view might be a better way. And over my career as a writer, I've come up against this. It's been an obvious story to write, but uh, for some reason I always veered away. And it basically involves Charles Starkweather and Carol Fugate. Charles' name is the one that sticks out because he was clearly the the main shooter, and it's a great name anyway. But he was 17 years old when he met Carol Fugate, who was 12, 13 at the time. And uh, they went together for about a year and a half. And in January of 1958, they started a crime spree throughout uh, Nebraska and ending up in Wyoming, where he was finally captured. And for 48 hours, he was he was killing people in Lincoln, and then they'd go to a Bennett, a small town. They'd think he was out of Lincoln, then he would come back to Lincoln and kill some people there. And the cops never knew where he was. They couldn't they couldn't cite him. They couldn't find him. And the town that for the last 48 hours that he was loose, he had killed a family in Lincoln. Um, the town was absolutely terrified. I mean, he it was it was beyond being scared because. He was killing people and disappearing and then coming back and killing people again and then disappearing again. And this kind of set a panic, which it's it's hard to imagine if you weren't there or haven't talked to people who were there. It went beyond fear. It was he could be in my garage. Yes. He could be in my child's you know, uh, schoolroom. I could walk outside and you know find him on my porch and he's going to blow me away. And, uh, it was a for about 48 hours in there that, that they had that called out the National Guard. They were patrolling the streets of Lincoln with with machine guns and jeeps. Um, everybody, I mean, it's it's actually quite hard to imagine. And the story, the the kids at the time ended up being almost more traumatized because they saw the fear on their parents' faces. And that has stayed with them to this day. And maybe that's what Mr. Luby's going to talk I have, about. I, I, I have they're sitting, still kind of screwed up. From yeah, it. I have him sitting sitting on hold right now. Uh, Louie, if you would, uh, Harry McLean, the book is Starkweather. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is one of the best friends I've ever had in this business. Please say good morning. Welcome back to the show. Daryl Luby. Uh, D-Man, good morning, man. Thanks for coming back up. Good morning, my friend. Now, have you guys ever met Harry? Have you ever met Daryl? Uh, you would have crossed paths, certainly at radio stations with us. But uh, uh, Daryl, you were how old when all of this happened? Nine years old, and, and just a kid, and <laughs> Harry, very impressionable. And Harry, how old were you when this when when it happened? I was I was thirteen. Daryl, you've told me so many. Actually, you know, we we did haunted houses together. Uh, to give you an idea. And we would sit and tell stories when we were doing these haunted houses. I'll, I'll just turn it to you, Daryl. What was it like, and where were you living when Starkweather began to kill? We lived in Seward, Nebraska, which is just 25 miles straight west of Lincoln. And you're right, it was terrifying. Uh, and, and, and I think Mr. McLean hit it right on the head. I remember just the fear in my mother's voice and in her face, uh, on her face, uh, it was a very, very scary time. 
at one point, the news was reporting that they thought Charlie and Carol Ann were heading west. And boy, did the radar go up then. And Mom gathered the four of us kids up, and we went down the basement and hid underneath the shuffleboard. Wow. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it, uh, it, it was worse than knowing a tornado was coming your direction, which is the other thing we used that shuffleboard for. Is, is, and, was, and in fact, in fact, when they left Lincoln, they did go through Seward. See, I did not know when they that. Were fleeing, they, were, they were right through town. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, this was pre uh, Interstate 80, so I guess that does make sense. Yeah. Again, your experiences, Harry, do they do they rival or sound the same as as Daryl's? Oh yeah, no. I mean, it was uh, it was. I think what happened with the kids was they got the idea that their parents couldn't keep them safe mm. uh, from stark weather, uh, and that that's really. And and Dad was getting out his army rifle from World War II, and sitting in front of the front door with it cocked and ready to go. This was uh, your or, this, this was your dad. No, that was that's just what people oh, did. Oh, okay. My dad, okay. He he hit us and he put he went out and put the put the keys in the car and basically that was kind of if you want the car come and get come it, and get you know, it. Yeah. So just don't yeah. come in here so you and you, they were telling people to leave the garage doors open so he couldn't hide i mean it was and, and there were men up on the roof with rifles there were men up on the roof of uh, um of the hospitals with rifles looking for him daryl did you when you when you guys went out of the house or if you went out of the house did you see any of that as well we did not leave the house. Uh, we wanted to. I, you know, the, I've got two older brothers and a younger sister, and we, we, of course, wanted to get out and go do things. And, you know, the word was absolutely not. We are not leaving. And the house was locked. And, uh, and, and in fact, at night, we kept most of the lights off. So it would look like there was nobody home. Wow. And it, uh, it was a very, very scary thing. Uh, you know, just, gosh, <laughs> the memories just come flooding back listening to this. Harry, put it in perspective. Set it all up again. It's 1958. Starts in January. Uh, Daryl, how? Starts you, in January. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, please go ahead. Um, it, it's important for the overall picture just to take a second and say 1958 in the heartland of America, and particularly in most of America, was still in the afterglow of World War II. It was there was prosperity. Uh, we came out as the strongest country in the world, the biggest economy, the biggest military. Things were relatively safe. We had the nuclear threat, but I never felt as a kid, I never, that was too abstract for me. Life basically worked back then. We knew what good and evil was. Evil were the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians for a while. Mm -hmm. Good was us and England and the West. And the very, very few uh, Starkweather was the first mass murder of the TBH. There had been a few before, but way in, back in the 20s and 30s. Evil, people that were killed then were killed by somebody that they knew. Four-fifths of the people in 1958 of the homicides were people that knew the people that they killed. The idea of a stranger killing you for no apparent reason simply did not exist. Uh, it didn't, you know, there weren't random shootings. There weren't such things as, quote, active shooters. <laughs> so in the middle of this, Starkweather um, and Carol, we have to mention Carol, as I said, she was 12 at the time. And one of the big open-ended questions that I try and solve in the book is what is Carol's 
liability. What was her participation mm. in the killings? Um, she's been convicted. Mm. She was convicted of a, of a felony murder, but in the eyes of the law and the eyes of the culture of Lincoln and Nebraska and pretty much the country, she was as guilty as Charlie. They actually saw her as a murderer. She's still alive. I know. And I talk to her, and I try and deal with that question of her guilt uh, or innocence because the, the place they started, that Charlie started, was at her house. And he killed uh, her mother, her stepfather, and her little girl, her little sister. And from there, they go on, uh, well, they actually stay in the house for six or seven days, and word comes that, you know, the police are going to show up. The grandmother has called them, so they take off. And they end up that night, that afternoon, actually, at a farmer's house, friend of Charlie's. He kills the friend, takes takes the gun, and then about an hour and a half later, the car is stuck, and they are hitchhiking down a road. A young couple, 16- or 17-year-old high school kids from Bennett, Nebraska, stop and pick them up. They end up dead, too, that night. Uh, they go back to Lincoln, and the next day uh, get in. And this is what really started to terrify people. They killed three of the most prominent. Well, they killed a family, uh, uh, the most prominent, one of the most prominent families in town in a very wealthy neighborhood. And, uh, and they killed a maid there too. And every one of these killings, the cops are at least one step behind. In some cases, they're two steps behind. So by the time they're at this crime scene and find the bodies, Charlie and Carol are have murdered two. There are two more crime scenes. And if this I could, is also what's there. I'm sorry. No, no. I want to go back to Daryl. Daryl, did did you know all the um, the murders? Did you do you or, or was it just this one huge fear factor? It was really just one big fear factor. We didn't know the specific details. Okay. okay up of course what was being you know broadcast on the radio and so on and 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 they also had trouble keeping track and keeping up with everything and and harry when you're a young guy did you know about the individual because the way you write the book is you know, they are reported they find the next one and the next one were you aware of that as a kid it it did it did get out uh, but it was always so it was always one step behind, at least one step behind, and when you did hear about it, and it was mainly radio was the big was, yeah. was how it got out. There, you know, TV cover started. I mean, well, there were there were three or four nights in there where Huntley Brinkley carried it every night. Yeah, it was the it was the first marriage, if you want to call it that, of violence and television, and this wow. is what really ended up giving the story the impact uh, because. Now this story is in your living room. It's not on paper. It's yeah. not over the radio. You yeah. are seeing these yeah. people while you're eating while you're eating dinner, and that just heightened the fear in town as well. You know, it's Peter Boyles again. I got to tell you who's with us. Uh, the book is Starkweather, and I got the advance in this book about three months ago, and I didn't put it down. And then, of course, Daryl Luby, dear friend, who lived through this as a little kid, and then Harry McLean, of course, longtime friend. The author of this, The uh, the Killing Spree, but one of the, I'm going to, Daryl, I'm going to jump to the end of the book, and then we'll work back and forth, 
you find her, and you I think you said she was 79. How long ago, Harry, did you actually meet Cheryl Ann and talk to her? Uh, I'd be about a, about a year and a half now. So she's still alive, to the best of your knowledge. To the best of my knowledge, she's still alive. And when I found her, nobody knew where she was. Yeah, that's... Her lawyer didn't know where she was. No. She was... That's a whole other story, why she was kind of hidden away like that. But, but I, again, uh, I, thought, yeah. I thought that was so powerful that you walk in the room, and um, I think you said she was 79, and, 79. Uh, and looked every bit of it, and still still here. Well, did she actually murder anyone, the best of, best of your abilities? Well, that's that's what that's what the local law enforcement believed then, and and in all their notes they say that. Um, at at most, she participated mm-hmm. in some things like like carrying guns to Charlie or um, warning him of somebody coming. There's no evidence that she actually murdered somebody. The question is what level of what what was her level of participation in the murders, if if any. And she was convicted, and she spent 17 years. Mm-hmm in prison and was released and went on to live an exemplary life. One of the most stunning facts in there. She just, you know, she worked for 23 years at an aid as a hospital, Mm -hmm. had friends, traveled to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Quite a story. Was she aware when they were on the run, was she aware that he had killed her family? Well, that's, that's the big, that's the big debate because Charlie says that she was there when Mm -hmm. he did it. He, he says this at the end. His first 10 stories where she wasn't there. Then when her trial comes up, she, he changes his story and said she was there. Not only that, she killed two people. Yeah. So if she was, the, and she claims to have been a hostage because Charlie told her he had her parents mm-hmm. and a little sister hidden away somewhere. And if she tried to run, he was going to kill him. Mm-hmm. So if she was there, that hostage theory is out the window because... Mm-hmm. She knew he, that they were dead, and sets. And then the question is, why didn't she run? She had opportunities to leave, and if she knew they were dead, why didn't she leave? And this is how this is the the theory under which people convict her of it. And she claims that she came home from school, there were no bodies. She mm-hmm. cleaned up the house. She didn't know anything until four or five days later about what had happened to her parents. When they were caught in Wyoming, Daryl, when you're a little kid, did was that a sign of relief for people that they had caught them? Absolutely. You know, everybody felt uh, uh, like the weight had been lifted off of them, if you will. It was it was great news. It really was. Did, did, did it echo for years afterward? One of the things, one of the cases that Harry makes is, and I, I thought it was brilliant, that uh, it was a cultural version of PTSD. Uh, the, the town suffered from what Charlie did. You're asking me that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you remember any aftermath? No, honestly, I don't. Uh, but it's interesting. Carol Ann's, uh, Carol Ann Fugate's name stuck with me forever. I went to college in Kearney, and, and Carol Ann was in jail, as I remember, in York. And I swear, every time I drove home and drove through York, heading back to Seward or back to Kearney, I always thought to myself, I wonder if Carol Ann is still in prison here. <sighs> So it, it, yeah. I'm, like I say, boy, you, you, I could pull her name out at, in an instant at any time. <laughs> and so uh, back, back to, of course, the man who puts it together, Harry. When 
when Starkweather and Sharon were caught in Wyoming, in fact, did that echo with you as a young kid or was there a relief or when you come to this conclusion, which I thought was brilliant in the book, this PTSD, speak to those if you would. Well, I mean, not, not only were they terrified, but when he was caught, there were three or four hours where they had found this, found this couple murdered in their home, this prominent couple. That got out, and supposedly he was gone, well gone from Lincoln then. by then. That's what everybody thought. So when these bodies were found, three of them in this house, a block and a half from the country club, everybody, they, it was about three or four hours before they caught him in Wyoming, and that's when the, the absolute panic hit. Yeah. So when they were caught, there was this huge relief. We can go into our garage again, and we can unlock our doors, but look at what happened to us. Look at how scared we were. Look at how panicked we were. I mean, and, and so they had to deal not only with the shock of the murders, but the shock of how freaked out they were over the whole thing. Yeah. What, what struck me and, in, in, in reading you is that this is, is the first. Um, it, and I remember as a kid in Pittsburgh, I remember... I don't know, reading about it or watching it on TV or whatever it was, but I do remember, and of course we were so far removed, but I remember, you know, reading or watching about, listening to, uh, you know, where was Charlie Starkweather? And you guys are living in it. Um, and when it was over, Daryl, it was over. Yeah, it sure was. And and you're right. You know, it was a, a <clears throat> sigh of relief. If you, if you go out in the yard and play again, you know, that's, that's all we lived for was to go out and play, and we were locked up in the house for a while. And yet, the best case, and it's is what Harry says. It go it in a psychological way. It it goes on, does it not, Harry? It 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 lingers. I mean, it's interesting. Most people our age have just they, who weren't from Nebraska or even the Midwest have some knowledge mm-hmm. of it. It's pretty vague, kind of like yours. Yeah, we we were aware of it, but we didn't quite know a whole lot about it. But it lingers on in the town in in odd ways. I don't, you know, I didn't talk to any college students. I don't know if they're picking up on it. But it's wound into the culture of Lincoln and Nebraska and and always will be. And when I would walk up and talk to people anywhere over their 50s, um, they were aware of the facts, and most of them had opinions about who killed who. They were, they were pretty, you know, they, they were pretty conversant with the facts. Ten, ten people were killed, correct? Well, 11 total. He killed somebody by himself okay. uh, in December of 57, but on, on the spree itself, there were 10. One of the things, Daryl, that, that is so brilliant, again, by uh, Harry's work, and the more I looked, I actually went on the internet to look at pictures. You believe, and it sounds, it looks as though you're right, that the actor James Dean, what does he do with Starkweather, Harry? Well, you know, oddly enough, Starkweather's kind of a, well, he's, a, he's an odd looking character. He's five foot five, he's got thick red hair, kind of like Bozo the Clown. Uh, which in the time of the day, he's got roll back on the top and a duck tail and all that. And, but he's short and he's bow-legged, so he's kind of an odd-looking guy, but he has a striking resemblance wow. to James Dean. 
and his partner, one of his partners in crime, would say he was James Dean before James, James Dean, Dean was James Dean. Yeah. Uh, now, James Dean wasn't on murdering people, but he, if you look at the photographs of him, oh. there is a strike. There is oh, a striking oh. resemblance. I was on the Internet like an hour looking. And that cigarette in the corner of your mouth stuff that James Dean did, that's Charlie Starkweather. Yeah, and they and they, you know, a rebel without a cause came out in this time period. Mm-hmm. And he and his friend went and watched it five times yeah. in the local theater, yeah. so Charlie could get get down the cigarette dangling from the corner of his mouth and and the and the kind of sullen mm-hmm. rebel look in your eyes that James Dean made so famous. And then, of course, natural born killers. Um, talk about that film and Starkweather. Well, I mean, one of the impacts of Starkweather, like I said, was the, was the, the marriage of violence and television. And that's, that went on into movies and books and songs. Uh, it's been overly romanticized. But the first movie was called Badlands, which I'm sure yes. a lot of people know. It was Terry Malick's first mm-hmm. movie. Sissy Spacek played Carol. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Sheen played Charlie. And that came out in 76. Uh, Natural Born Killer, if you watch it, you'll see Charlie and Carol there. I mean, it was Oliver Stone um, admits that they say inspiration is probably Mm. as far as you can take it. But the idea of the young couple uh, on a crazed killing spree got set off by Charlie Starkweather and it's you know it's it, it was carried into obviously Natural Born Killer and Bruce Springsteen sang a song Nebraska yeah Nebraska Nebraska put you guys both on hold I'm going to take a break when we come back if you would Harry begin why I mean even at the end of all of it I was still puzzled in why Starkweather begins to kill all of the people that he kills these guys are on hold seven ten K and you ask the book is Starkweather. Uh, it's in paper, and it's on sale now, and it is so worth your time. I was just intrigued by the book, and I remember part of it as well. The untold story of the killing spree that changed America, Starkweather. Tell you about Stack Optical and my good friend, Alan Stack, Stack Optical, serving Denver since 1968, focused on providing the highest standards of customer service. And they have a great selection of eyewear. They do appointment only, so or appointments can be done. Maybe I should say it that way. If you have a difficult prescription, they can help you. Their on-site eyeglass production lab delivers the best quality prescription sunglasses, sporting lenses, of course, eyeglasses. All of my glasses are from Stack. Motorcycle glasses, prescription skiers, sunglasses, name and claim it, Stack Optical, has what you're looking for. Alan Stack has been such a longtime friend. Located 2233 South Monaco Parkway, near South Monaco and Evans. Call him for the appointment, $69 eye exam, 303-321-1578, 303-321-1578. And you say, I'd like to come in Tuesday at 1 o'clock. You set it and forget it. Visit them online at stackoptical.com. StackOptical.com for premier care and vision health. Alan Stack and Stack Optical. Call them. Tell them I sent you. But please make the appointment. Call the man up, 303-323-1578, 2233 South Monaco Parkway. Better believe it. It's 1034, 26 before 11. 
On a Saturday morning, 710 KNUS, I'm Peter Boyles. The weather, beauty, 60, the high today and tomorrow, 63 and 65 on Monday. Great guests. And it's time to talk about Danny Kaplis, the law firm, and Dan's my guy. Believed to be the only attorney in Colorado and in the history of the state to win five straight multi-million dollar jury verdicts in motor vehicle crash cases. Dan and his partners, uh, the large truck crash jury verdicts, he's truly, I mean, Danny and I talk about him when our family had problems, Dan was there. The firm's history of seven and eight figure settlements and verdicts speaks for itself. That's a firm where good people from all walks of life without regard to ability to pay get the level of legal representation that they only the powerful deserve. And they claim, and they got this, but Danny's firm believes that talk is cheap, experience counts, results matter. The firm would be happy to share with you its track record of outstanding jury verdicts and out-of-court settlements. Dan Kaplis believes that who you are says a lot about you and who you hire. So, they suggest you choose a firm, the law firm, that shares your values. And, of course, that's Dan. The firm believes that core values have been the foundation of its of the success of the firm, faith, integrity, hard work, and dedication to the right causes. If you need Danny's help, and, of course, 303-770-5551, 303-770-5551, or hit dancaplislaw.com, C-A-P-L-I-S Law. He is my friend. He's a great attorney. 303-770-5551. On the line with us, and it's so good to have his voice back, Harry McLean, who did the um, In Broad Daylight was the book I think I first met him on, and now Starkweather, uh, the story of the killing spree that changed America. Daryl Luby, my longtime friend in the radio business, was a little boy in that time period as well, and um, we're getting a bunch of questions. What happened to Charlie? Well, they, they, you, Harry, what happened to Charlie, and how did they catch him? Well, they caught him up, up in Wyoming, and uh, he was heading west toward Washington where he had a brother, and he ran into a – he. Uh, they, had, they had tracked the car that he was in, and so he was getting ready to ditch the car, and he ended up killing somebody to take his car. And right after that it happened, the state patrol car came down and a big chase ensued. It was kind of like the old West. He's, he's going 105 miles through the Badlands of Wyoming and the cop cars behind him shooting uh, their 30-30 at him. He finally pulls over and they, and they capture him. The interesting thing about Charlie is that he confessed to all 10 murders right away. He never proclaimed innocence. So he went pretty quickly. Uh, they tried him for one murder, the murder of one of the youths outside of Bennett that he had killed. Um, and he, that was, they tried him in May of 50, 58 and executed him about 15 months later. So those were the, those were the, uh, the old days when you convicted somebody and, uh, and gave him a death sentence and, and 15 months later he was dead. When, when, in cold blood. When did the when were the Cutters murdered? What year? Four months after. after that's, Charlie what I, was that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Not not far after. Not long after this at all. Any connect? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, oh, oh, no, no, it's not not between mm-hmm. uh, not between the two killings. No, but it certainly. Uh, 
that kind of developed the fascination uh, in this country with violent crime, particularly when it was um, kind of the, in, in the heartland. That's that senior, if it had been in the streets of the Bronx or something, or LA, but here we are in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Holcomb, Kansas, where the clutters were murdered, and these horrible crimes were taking place. It, it just set up a relentless fascination, I think. Daryl, do you ever, do you remember anybody or anybody talking about murders or other murders other than this when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, you know that that was a rarity, and uh, no, Starkweather, like you said, just kind of opened the gates and <laughs> changed everything. And Harry, you do believe he was trying to get to California, Washington? Yeah, Washington, I mean that, was, that was that was where they were heading. Yeah. And at that point, of course, the cops were still convinced he was in Lincoln. They were. So no. they. The, now, the motive. Why does Charlie do it? Why, what's her motive to go along with him? How do these people motivate themselves to do what they did? Well, you know, Peter, when you said that before the break, I mean, I, I often think about that. But why mass murderers do what they do is is pretty much one of the great questions of the day. I don't think we understand it, but um, in Charlie's case, he had been taunted uh, relentlessly all the way through grade school and junior high and um, viciously by both boys and girls. He also had a lisp and was uh, was pigeon-toed, so you can imagine what that drew to him. Um, his response to that was initially just to withdraw. And one day his dad says to him, the next time that mm-hmm. happens, don't take it easy, just smack him. Yeah. And Charlie turned the corner on that. And then he turned into somebody who just beat the hell out of people. Um, my brother was in school with him and he could tell stories about the fights that Charlie had almost on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, he'd fight people that didn't even want to fight him. And in this time period, he develops a fantasy world. And in this fantasy world, he's an outlaw and he has a gang and he has guns and he kills people and he shoots people. Sounds kind of simplistic, but this fantasy world became his reality. The only thing he needed to make it work was a girl. He meets Carol at 17. She fits the bill. They're going to ride together. He's going to kill for her. They're going to go out in a blaze of glory. Charlie was ready to die. He he didn't really expect to live out this streak. And um, the only thing he wanted was he wanted he wanted it to be in the public eye. He wanted to be known for it. Uh, he didn't he didn't mm-hmm. want to uh, be found guilty by reason of insanity. He said no one remembers mm-hmm. uh, a crazy man. Mm-hmm. So he wanted the blaze of glory like an old, and he got it. Uh, he got just what he wanted with these cops chasing him through the Badlands, shooting at him, firing at him, and finally he pulls over because he doesn't have any ammunition left. Um, what a great story. And it's capped off with his execution. That's going to make him live forever. The only thing that was wrong with it was, as Bruce Springsteen wrote, he didn't have Carol sitting there on, on, on his, his lap. lap. Yeah, the, sitting on the lap, yeah. You know, it's really interesting. Um, what was the, uh, Arthur Bremer, the guy that uh, shot George Wallace, as I've read in that book where he's in Maryland in the shopping center. And when the cops grab him, 
his first words to the one arresting officer is, I'm really somebody now, aren't I? And he had, and see, yeah. and see, Charlie, Charlie opened the door to that sort of pathology. People weren't thinking that way. Uh, psychopaths were not thinking that Mm-mm. way. They stayed yeah. in their basement. They murdered their mother. Yeah. They murdered a neighbor. The idea of going out into the public square and killing people that you didn't know. And of course, that's not Bremer's case, but Starkweather didn't know these people. No. And Gacy, you know, didn't know those no. boys. No. And um, that idea of going out and killing random people in mass that started with you, Charlie. I mean, I, I've applied that that thought of yours to these guys that walk into WalMarts or even terribly into into schools. Are they trying to put their mark on the wall by doing that? Yeah, I, I think they're writing a script for themselves, yeah. in which and they they've they've given up on surviving it most of them obviously they either kill themselves or they or they know they're going to be killed mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a story it's a story for them and they feel nothing i mean that's the the psychopath yeah. they don't feel anything yeah. about it but but they want that they want the notoriety um and charlie was the one who said hey look here look what happens if you do this mm-hmm. you get tv you get yeah. movies you get well known mm-hmm. here's a way out of the shadows boys Daryl, any? I mean, does any of that rebound with you when you were a kid about watching these guys do this stuff, watching him do it? You know, it just the whole thing was such a, a fascination. Uh, like we said earlier, were, were you drawn to it when you were a kid when it was all going on? Oh, we certainly paid attention to it, but it yeah. was because of fear, not not out of okay. a, uh, a curiosity as to what drove him or mm. what motivated him. Uh, no, it was just a matter of fear and, and self-preservation. So when it's said and done, what about her? How does Cheryl play out in this? Harry? Uh, it's, well, it's, it's Carol. Uh, Carol, I'm, Carol sorry. Ann, I'm sorry. Yeah. Carol Ann Fugate and... Uh, what in the end drew me to this case was her guilt or innocence. She's always portrayed as guilty. Some people raise the question, well, maybe she didn't kill anybody. Um, at 14, she's a convicted murderess in most people's eyes. And it, if I were to tell you what the criminal justice system in Lincoln, Nebraska was in 1958, you'd be shocked. Just take my word for it. It was very informal, very casual, very loose without a lot of principles of um, law applied to her, including a big confession. But I decided to go at it because I'm a, uh, I was a magistrate and I'm going to sit as an arbitrator, which means kind of issuing a judge-like function as if I, as if uh, she were being tried today. And I looked at, to go look at all the facts um, objectively without any bias that she was guilty or innocent and see where it shook out. Um, because that that's, as I said, that's the overriding question, and she's still alive. And uh, so I do that in the book. I go through it, the facts, as if I were a judge deciding the case. Forget biases, forget what she looked like. She had a tough look on her face, mm-hmm. and she didn't show any remorse, and that turned a lot of people against her. Forget all that stuff. What do the facts show? What did she do? What didn't she do? Um, the way The way any judicial process would... And then how does it shake out? And? You're, you're, well, you're, uh, it, one of the things that 
uh, going too far into it was that um, psychology. She would, you know, she would, she could have gotten the death sentence. And uh, at age fourteen, was it, there were people. That, been, there weren't there people that wanted her to die. Oh God, yes. Yeah. The the families of the victim and all the people in this little town of Bennett, where the this couple had been killed, um, they they insisted that she was just as guilty as Charlie, and they insisted that she had killed the girl there, mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, not only that, she had killed the maid in the wealthy family's mm-hmm. house, murdered them. No evidence to that at all, but. Um, what we know now about trauma and brain science, there's a real question about right. her capacity to resist or to think for herself and make independent choices about what she was going to do when, you know, when these murders happened, because they were committed in front mm-hmm. of her by somebody that she was in love with. So as the murders continue, is she really capable? Mm-hmm. Does she have the capacity mm-hmm. to choose out of the crime spree? And that's that's the way we would look at it today. Okay. It's kind of like when, the. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say when I read it, I thought of Patty Hearst. Yeah. Oh, that's exact. That's the same notion. Yeah. And that's yeah. Uh, exactly the same notion. She, you know, she became that that involves the Stockholm syndrome mm-hmm. somewhat mm-hmm. because she became attached to her yeah. captors and Carol. That doesn't really fit her that way. But the idea that she became. Uh, you know, under the influence of Charlie and mm-hmm. kind of lost her ability to to think her way out of it is very similar. I'll tell you who else is similar to is Elizabeth Smart. There you go. Exactly the same fact. Wow. She's same age, captured by two people. She goes out in public with those people. She eats in restaurants oh, with them. Patty Hearst is robbing. Patty Hearst is robbing banks with them. <laughs> it's like wow. Yeah. 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 Hey, so Pete, that, that, a that's, a, that's a real principle to bring down on her in that case, which I, which I try and do. Daryl, go ahead. You, you folks talked, or you and Pete talked earlier about PTSD. Did Carol exhibit any symptoms of PTSD later on in life? That that's the odd part of it. Now she, in a way, she did, but she would say she would, you know, have memories of it and flashbacks and so forth, but. After she was, she had an exemplary record in prison, and after she left, she lived a totally normal life. Uh, No other crimes, no drug abuse, no alcohol, no encounters with the police, just as normal as it might be, which is quite startling, whether she's guilty or not, that she could have survived those 10 murders and 17 years in prison and all of a sudden come out and, you know, live, live, live a normal life. Um, but she didn't. She didn't have any of the traumatic flashbacks like we think about with PTSD and, and uh, veterans. One of the one of the I, you always think about all these different cases. I have a pause coming up, but Leopold and Loeb, one of them does get out of prison and goes on to this same lifestyle that you're talking about that she that she exhibited. Yeah, I think the other guy, and I don't know the. One of the was killed in prison or died, but the other guy, after this one crime, uh, becomes a, um, I think, a physician's helper in some very terrible parts of the world, as though he mm-hmm. was trying to make up for uh, what what he had done. Do you think that was rocking with her that she was trying to trying to find a way out of what she had done? 
Well, yeah, out of her way. Of, I mean, she claims she's innocent, of course, yeah, of course and yeah. has from has from the from the very beginning. But she still has to deal with the fact that she was yeah. there through yeah. the murders yeah. and didn't run and so yeah. forth. And I don't think you know, uh, looking through all the facts, that she repressed it or isolated it or mm. developed a multiple personality to avoid living with it. She somehow was able, as an act of will, to to go forward. Uh, with with a wife. Now she didn't have any children because she said she didn't want to bring children into the world where she would be their mother and and, and the resulting impact on them. But uh, I think it was it's it's a it's a good question and I don't know how she managed how she managed to what, do it to tell they, you the truth. They, they, they were having sex. I mean, she was underage. We're, we're, I'm, if I remember correctly, Charlie's having sex with her. Is he? Correct. Yeah. And, and and that's I mean she she you know denies it now but she admitted it so many yeah. times. Uh, but the interesting question about that was that was a form of rape at the time oh, because sure. of Charlie's age and her age. Yes. The statue in Nebraska read, "If you're under 19 and uh, she's under 14, uh, or, or you're over 17, mm -hmm. it's going to be rape yeah. unless." She is previously unchaste. Can you imagine that? True. If she's had sex before, it's You're, not rape. You can't. You can't rape her. But they were. They were lovers. Well, I'm. I'm convinced of that. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Can I let me t take everybody off into a pause here for a second? Uh, by the way, real quick before you go, Harry, how, where can people find the book, and then we'll come back and wrap it up. Um, where is it on sale? Where do we see it today? It comes on sale on the 28th of, of, of November. Where will it be? Yeah. The best of our knowledge. Everywhere. Everywhere. Tattered Cover, Barnes yeah. & Noble. So, and Peter, if you didn't get a hard copy with the photographs and everything, I'm gonna, I'll have that sent to you. Oh, very cool, because I got the advance. I got the paper. And, yeah. Yeah. I'll have that right. sent to you. Everybody, she she should have done it. But. Ah, uh, this was... But thank you. Everybody, hang on. 710 KNUS Denver's talk station, the Black Eyed Pea. Locally owned and operated by Steve and Michelle. Going to try and motorcycle there for breakfast tomorrow. Love the restaurants. The, all, there's eight locations to be sure there's one near you, so, uh, near you. So when's the last time you took the family to eat at the Black Eyed Pea? Thanksgiving will soon be here. And give thanks when you don't have to cook. The Black Eyed Pea will be open on Thanksgiving Day from 10 in the morning till 4, serving all of your holiday favorites, roast turkey breast dinners, Old-fashioned country ham, slow-cooked pot roast for 24 bucks. There's a kid's menu, save room for dessert, pumpkin pie, pecan pie, cherry cobbler with ice cream. And holiday catering is available. Our friends, and Steve and I have grown, man. He's, he's the good man. So if you download the Black Eyed Pea app or go to their website and select Pickup, you can place your order without having to call in. Love everything about these restaurants, and I know you know as well. Let them do the cooking for you and keep it in Colorado. Visit the Black Eyed Pea near you. Saturday morning, everyone, November the 11th, 2023. The weather's going to be pretty nice for this time of year. 60 today, 63 on Sunday, and 65 on Monday. Just a wonderful setup guest. Our guest is Harry McLean, the book Stark Weather, and my dear friend Daryl Luby, who lived it as a kid. Uh, D, and I want you to read this book. In the end of it, I think the most powerful part, Harry, of what you the, the work that you put in is going to find her. Um, and you talk about you know going down the hall and uh, she's in her room and 
can you pick it up there and talk talk to that, please? Yeah, I, I couldn't find her. Uh, as I said earlier, no one knew where she was. And uh, I was going to try and give up on it. But every time I talk to a journalist or anybody in the media, they say, if you talk to Carol, if you talk to Carol. By this time, I'd studied her life for a couple of years. And it kind of dropped out of the sky one day. I got a call from somebody who knew who she was, where she was. And a couple of days later, I'm on an airplane flying up there. I'm going, well, either if I get kicked out, that's a story. If I talk to her, that's a story. And I walk in, uh, I find it in a small little nursing home, a small little town, and and walk in, and uh, I'm, I, I keep thinking that they're going to say something. Every time I start walking down the hall, I wait for the voice to come over the, the public address thing, you know, Mr. McLean, please, and nothing happens. I walk down, and they say, go to this. Go to this entry or go to this desk here, and they'll tell you where her room is. And she's not going by Fugate now; she's yeah. going by a different name, by her her married name. Mm-hmm. And so I I turn down the hall and I go down there, and she this woman says, well, "I'll walk you down there." And I say, oh, no, but she does. She walks me down there. The door opens, and I, there's this mm-hmm. wheelchair and a tiny, tiny little lady. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's, a little doll with her. gray hair and pretty blue eyes. Yeah. And I look at her and I go, I wonder if we have the wrong room. And I yeah. say, Carol? And she goes, yeah. yeah. So I, I walk inside and it's, it's weird to have known her so long and so well in such great depth by facts and then to actually sit down and talk to her. Jeez. D, you got to read it. It's part of your childhood and everybody else as McLean always does. It's just amazing work. Um, the book will be out on what what date in, in, in this month again, Harry? November 28th. It's, oh, yeah, it's okay. on Amazon, too. It's entitled Starkweather, and what a name. It fits everything that he that he did, doesn't it? And it's, it's amazing. If it, was, uh, if it was Johnson, I don't know what would have You know what's on. interesting? Do you remember the name that James Dean chose for Rebel Without a Cause, what his name was. No. Stark. Was it really? It was his last name, yeah. As that's to as, as to speak to the starkness. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But he was Stark. Yeah, that's right. I do remember. And the, and the cover of the book um, fits that name yes. in the story. It's most, out of all the books I've written, it's the most amazing cover I've it, ever It seen. truly is. Daryl, I if you don't get it, I'll give you my paper uh, for you to read. I'll see you. you. Harry, I'll see you, man. For sure, you're just a gift. Thank you, D-Man. Thank you. And uh, we got open lines coming up on the other side. Harry, take care of yourself. You mean? Me, Peter. Oh, my pleasure. It's always fun talking to you. You as well. And Daryl, I'll talk to you this week, brother man. Thank you. All right. So we got open lines. 303-696-1971. Back right after this. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.